0: Joshua 24, verse 1. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers. And they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely, Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron And I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst, and afterward I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and brought the sea upon them and covered them, and your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt." and you lived in the wilderness for a long time. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who lived beyond the Jordan, and they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam. So he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. You crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Gergeshite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Thus I gave them into your hand. Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword or your bow." I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, and you have lived in them. You were eating of vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You may be seated. On our message this morning, God's people are gathered outside. Outside. Through a spokesman, God is calling them to to give them a charge, a final charge. And for decades, you sense this. God had been caring for God's people. He's delivering them, providing for them, protecting them. Yet in the land in which they would dwell, sin would hang over them. It's kind of like a sap that oozes, seeking to cling to every passing heart. These are the people of God. They have a faith in God. But for years following that faith, they carried their own gods. You see, idolatry doesn't simply dissolve on its own. Idolatry doesn't magically disappear from one's life. Change requires resolve and intention God's people lived, dare I say, God's people live with divided hearts. At times, perhaps ignorant, maybe at times self-deluded, thinking that because they walk in the sun, they do not walk in the wilderness. But God wants to help. He wants to help them, and he wants to help us. To those under a tree in a town called Shechem, God wanted to help. And to those under the trees in a place called Hovander, God wants to help. The message for them is the message for us today. God speaks. It's a message from Joshua chapter 24. The message is quite simple. Serve the Lord. Now, we're going to set out to answer three questions about that simple statement. We're going to move really from the big to the small. We'll consider the book of Joshua, then that chapter portion we read, finally those last two verses. And as we move in, we'll answer three questions. The, the who and the what and the, the why of, of serving the Lord. This book of Joshua is, is a book of history. It spans about 25 years. It follows the death of Moses. Uh, The women's Bible study stopped at at Deuteronomy, you may recall, last spring. And and this is where it picks up. After Deuteronomy, they're going to go into this promised land. They're across the Jordan River. They're across from Jericho. And they're ready to move, ready to pounce into that promised land. The book of Joshua is recording their success. After dividing the land, Israel, these tribes, they finally have a place to call home. And what Joshua does here is he calls everyone together. He's advanced in age. It's his final charge, his final plea. And he tells them to serve the Lord. Well, that word is used six times in our last two verses, serve. Serve the Lord. It's kind of the hammer stroke of our message, especially as it climaxes at the end. In verse 14, Joshua says, serve him. Serve God, obey him, worship him, work for him. Give yourself, he's saying, and all of yourself to the Lord. To offer a contrast, Joshua would say, don't live life for yourself or for someone else, but live it all for the Lord. And to do this, God wants to remind you who he is and what he's done and how to succeed in this charge. Well, let's ask our first question then and seek to answer it. How, or excuse me, who do I serve? I mean, who is this God that I'm called to serve? Well, Joshua records that our God, that your God is holy, faithful, and sovereign. The Lord God is faithful. He keeps his promises. To Abraham, that great father of the Hebrew people, God promised him, I will give to you and to your descendants after you, the land of your sojournings, the land of your travels, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be your God. Well, years later, he would tack on to that. He would fill in detail as he spoke to Moses. The Lord your God will give you great and splendid cities, which you did not build, houses full of good things, which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant. Does God keep his promises? He does. God kept his promises. This land of Canaan is well stocked. It's fully furnished. We would call it move-in ready. This idea of possessing the land, the promised land, it's a, it's a major theme, if not the major theme in Joshua. If you've ever read this book, you may encounter those middle chapters, chapters 13 through 21. The author meticulously labors. He he details who got what. Here's the territory for so-and-so. Here's the boundary for so-and-so. It goes here and then it goes there for 272 verses. This is the very heart of the book. The author is proving The faithfulness of God. That means, with every boundary, that means, with every drooping eyelid, as you strain to read these chapters in the morning, there is a point. God is faithful to keep his promises. In chapter 21, verse 45 not one of the good promises which God had made the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. You serve a faithful God. And you serve a holy God. Holy meaning separate, unique. God is unlike you. He is unlike me. Literally so. When Israel set off to cross the Jordan River in Joshua, they had to follow something called the Ark of the Covenant, This is like a big box containing things like tablets of the Ten Commandments, uh, Aaron's rod, a priest's rod. It had the jar of manna inside. God's very presence were symbolized by this ark. It was an immensely holy object. So, to be near the ark is to be near God. One might logically think, well, I need to bump up against that thing to get some of that holiness. No, that is not a good thought. The officers went through the midst of the camp and they commanded the people saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant, you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits. Do not come near it. That's about 1,000 yards. You see, God is set apart. He is holy, physically so. There is a sense in this command that God wants us to see that separation. And as divinity, God is not like us. Uh, God is sinless, or he is pure, he is perfect. And in terms of morals, he does nothing wrong, no bad things. So for those then in this time when these commands are issued, as the priests go through the camp and warn people to follow the ark, but not too close, They had, in their near memories, truth. As they touched the the, the Jordan River with their toes, they could be on the threshold of conquest, yet look back over their shoulders at a trail snaking behind them, going south into a place called the wilderness. It's kind of like Mordor in the distance. A generation of Israelites, their very fathers, suffered in the desert. They lie there in the baking desert, choking on the sand of their ungrateful grumbling. Even here in this land, there's a heap of stones, underneath which is Achan and his family and his belongings. It's a reminder that God is holy and that he is jealous for our obedience. That God is set apart and pure is something that he wants for you and I as well. This is illustrated in the book of Joshua through a word in Hebrew pronounced harem. It means ban. In Joshua chapter 7 verse 1, Israel met defeat at a city called Ai. She lost that battle because she took things that were under the ban, things she should not have taken. In the book of Joshua, the Canaanites are devoted things. Harem. They're devoted to God and they're devoted to God for utter destruction. This word is also used of cities like Jericho and, and AI and, and Hazor. When Israel attacked these cities, she was supposed to destroy everything and destroy everything completely. We call it raising it to the ground. Annihilate all the people, destroy all the buildings, burn the city. This is not harsh. This is not unjust. Justice would be God doing that very act to our land this morning. That would be right. That would be just. The people of our unholy land invite the wrath of God daily. So do not be surprised at these verses. Be surprised at the gracious patience of a holy God. This very moment, he withholds what is justly deserved. You see, these Canaanites, they were not holy. They had no interest in holy. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, God predicted that he would destroy them because of their wickedness. And God knew furthermore that they would cause his people to stumble. In Deuteronomy 7, he told them to utterly destroy the enemy. Any quarter given to them. It's simply a snare that will come back to bite you. These Canaanites, they lived in a land that belonged to God. It's God's sovereign choice to give that land to Israel. One commentator called them, quote, squatters in the land of promise. They ruined land that didn't belong to them. It belonged to God, and God wanted to give it to God's people. You might go without saying that on top of that, they invited this By simply attacking Israel as she drew near. In Joshua 10 and 11, the Canaanites set out to attack Israel, thus incurring a counterattack. God is set apart, and He wants His people to be set apart. Well, thirdly, you need to know that your God is sovereign, He is all powerful, and He's in full control. God charged Israel to conquer the land. Yet it was God who won their battles. Now, just think about this for a moment. Think at this moment in time how Israel's resume read. What qualifications does she have to go in to the promised land? Well, first, she's a sheepherding nation. Sheepherders don't make great warriors. Secondly... She's pretty good at baking bricks. She was a slave in the land, and perhaps she excelled in the art of brick making. Listen, these are not combat-ready people. God knows that, and God achieves her victories. In fact, just prior to Jericho, their first big battle in the Promised Land, God sent Joshua, someone called the captain of the Lord's host. Many believe... This is Jesus in his pre-incarnate state before he had a body following his birth through Mary. What's the battle plan? Well, march your soldiers around Jericho for six days, and then blow your trumpets. There is no other way around it. This is not coming from Israel, the victories. It's coming from God. In our chapter we read, verse 13, it's not by your sword and not by your bow. Victory came by God alone. We say, let God lead. And that is good advice. And we should let God lead. But that's going to have real life implications. It is fantastically dangerous to charge into life into scenarios and situations when God doesn't lead. Whenever he led Israel, whenever Israel faithfully obeyed, they won. Whenever they didn't, what happened? They lost. So who is this God that we should serve? He is a God who is holy, sovereign, and faithful. So I want to ask you this morning, do you know this God? Not simply do you know about him, do you know facts about God? Do you pray a prayer and do you understand the implications of that prayer? No, we're going further than that. We're saying this morning, do you have a relationship with God? A relationship through Jesus Christ, through faith in Christ, You see, many people don't know the Lord, they know about him. This is going to be true both inside the church and outside the church. So to serve the Lord, we must know the Lord, know the Lord your God. Well, secondly, we'll ask another question about serving the Lord. Why should I serve? Why should I serve? Well, now we're going to draw closer to our passage and we'll see the answer to this in 13 verses leading up to it. Verse 1 set the scene for the verses at hand. God's people gathered at a place called Shechem. Abraham first stopped there after entering the promised land. He built an altar to the Lord there. Now Joshua, advanced in age, gathers God's people at Shechem for his final charge. And what he does is he reviews, really, Genesis through Numbers, and he does it in about 13 verses. Pretty good stuff. And he wants Israel to remember. That's why he's doing this. That's the reason for the review. Remember where you came from. Remember what God did. God brought your father Abraham out of Mesopotamia and into Canaan. And then of three people of Abraham, Nahor and Haran, God saved one. He chose Abraham. He says, I took your father Abraham from beyond the river. That's the Euphrates River. If someone today introduced themselves to you and said, hey, I'm from Paris or I'm from Italy, that's a pretty cool place to be from. We might be impressed. But that's not what Joshua is saying here. To be from beyond the river, beyond the Euphrates, that's the land of the pagans. It is an unholy place. It's the land of false worship. And what Joshua does in saying that is that God takes these pagan people, namely a pagan man, a man who worshipped other gods, God went to where he was and rescued him out of deep evil and redeemed him. Joshua is saying, don't forget your origin. Don't forget where you, be- you began. Don't forget where you came from. And he reminds the people that God then gave Abraham Isaac, and God gave Isaac Jacob. And he might say that because those things should never have happened. Both of their mothers, the wives there, they, neither Sarah nor Rebecca, they were able to conceive. It's a reminder that God is working, even through these impossible circumstances. Jacob and his brother Esau, he says they both went to a land. Esau gets a mountain. Jacob gets Egypt. Esau gets Mount Seir, a beautiful mountain, the land nearby. Jacob gets what will be scorn, servitude, slavery. This is not your best life now. What in the world is God doing I thought it's all supposed to be rosy now that we are in the grace of God. God grew his people through suffering. But he didn't leave them there. He used Moses and Aaron to deliver them up from slavery. And if you're following along in the text, something very interesting happens in verse 5. So far in this final charge, Joshua had been speaking about ancestors. We might call them fathers of the faith. Men in the distant past. But now he switches. And he begins to speak to you. He begins to speak in a very direct way to the people. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterward I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea. How cool would that be? To be of this generation, probably a child, very young, during the Exodus, to witness the mercy of God in the wilderness, a frightening mercy, and to be the generation now entering the promised land. His audience, in some ways, bore eyewitness to the power of God through all of those events. They're firsthand witnesses to the redemptive grace of God. The Lord God, through Joshua, also reminds the people of a man named Balaam. Remember Balaam? He was the, quote, prophet for hire in the Old Testament. Balak was the king of Moab. He hired Balaam to come and curse Israel three different times on three different mountains. He offered three different sacrifices. He was ushering Balaam around from here to there, up and down and up and down. And what did he have to show for it? Nothing. That's a lot of hiking for nothing. God intervened, and not only did he prevent Balaam from cursing Israel, he moved him to bless Israel instead. God blessed his people when others sought to harm them. And that brings us then to the record of this book, up to what Joshua has recorded in the early chapters. The Amorite and the Perizzite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, thus I gave them into your hand. Joshua has reviewed Almost in text message size, Abraham and Chaldea all the way through Israel in the promised land. But what's going to be the temptation for his audience? I've heard all this before, Joshua. I know these Bible stories. Joshua, you're old. You're preaching like they preached back in 1400 BC. It's the 1300s now, Joshua. We need a young guy, someone who can repackage this. Give us something cool, edgy. Joshua, make it dope. Joshua gave them what they needed to hear because they needed to remember. You need to hear what you already know because you need to remember. You see, you and I need God's word. We need stories we already know or think we know. And hearing them again is is how we changed God's powers in God's word. This is how we become Christ-like. So why then serve God? Why recount this old news? Because of what God did for you. In 13 verses, 15 times God is active on behalf of his people. What does he say? He says, I took, I delivered, I destroyed. I brought three different times. I gave, he says it, five times. I sent two times. I sent Moses. I sent the hornet. I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. Why should I serve the Lord God? Because of what he's done for you. Like Israel. He chose you from humble beginnings. You and I were not born as worshipers of God. Like Israel, God redeemed you. He gave you a good gift. He gives you good gifts. And like Israel, he's protected you. And he's preserved you. He's personally plotted right alongside you through the varied wildernesses of this life. So how then does one respond to this God? How do we respond to who God is and and what God has done? Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We call this practical theology. This is the truth of the Bible applied very practically to our lives. So how do I serve? Well, we serve in fear, in sincerity, in truth, and in purity. Over the past few months, I think we've gotten pretty good content on fear as we've worked our way through 1 Peter. That's been a a topic or a recurring theme. We've been learning about fear or reverence for God, another way of saying it. Simply an honoring God. Um, There's so many different gods in our lives calling for our attention. Joshua says, fear the Lord. Revere the Lord. Let him be the focus of your heart and your mind. Give him all your worship. Serve him reverently. He also called the people to serve God in sincerity. Now that Hebrew word means fullness or completeness. It means integrity. We divide up our lives between what belongs to God and then what doesn't belong to God. We divide up scripture into what we will obey and then what we won't obey. Some may excel in a a personal walk with Jesus You never miss a devotional time, but the the corporate commands of the Bible are absent from your life. Others may be just the opposite. Maybe they're they're very good on Sunday. They show up with all the pomp of faith and religion, but through the week it's a spiritual famine. Others divide the greatest commandments. They seek to love the Lord God with all their heart, their strength, and their, their mind, but they don't love their neighbor. See, God's people, they stood before Joshua And they worshipped God in word and in deed. But he put his hand on their hearts. And they beat for idols. For other gods. For self-created religion. We want to clarify here that an idol would be anything that receives worship that is due to God alone. In our passage, idols are gods. It's the lower G. Biblical counseling defines an idol, it's basically anything that replaces God. It tends to substitute for some aspect of who God is. Quote, rarely do modern people call their idols God, we just rely on them for some particular thing that only God does. And if you're unsure this morning of what idols might reside in your heart, you can begin with at least a few questions. You can ask yourself, what do I take refuge in? What am I passionate about? What is an object of my affection? I think as believers, we want to answer Jesus Christ for all of those things, but we know there's more to say sometimes. And just because you answer those questions with something that's not Jesus, it doesn't make them an idol, but it's certainly something to consider. Joshua says, serve the Lord God in purity. He says, put away those other gods. Put away those idols. Remove them or abolish them or deny them. And don't miss the depth of the problem. We can gloss over the end of this passage and see the charge to serve God, but don't miss what else he's saying here. Joshua said out loud... What was hidden in the tents of many of those people. Israel still worshiped false gods from Mesopotamia, from beyond the Euphrates River. That means she worshiped gods that have been passed down from this entire time since Abraham came into the land. Israel still worshiped false gods from Egypt, from the very people who enslaved them. That means they were more than willing to prostitute out their hearts to new ideas and new desires. Israel still worshipped false gods from the Amorites in whose land they now live. That means in this very moment, God's people lived as idolaters. Joshua says, put away your gods. In Genesis 35, Jacob is going to command the same thing to his household. He tells them, to put away these gods. And his household came out to him, and they brought out their idols or their gods. And you know what he did with them? He took them, and he buried them. And he buried them under the oaks in a town called Shechem. And I gotta wonder... If in this very moment, as Joshua pleads with God's people, that some of them are standing under an oak, just as you all are sitting under three oaks. And they're standing there, under their feet, atop of the dirt of where these idols are buried, because that's where idols belong. Serve the Lord God. This message today explains how and why and just who this God is who graciously loves the unlovely. Joshua stood before God's people with God's words and he looked out, no doubt, extremely pleased to see God's people standing there together, united. But he knew that idols remained. You see, God is a choosing God. And God calls you today to make a choice. To choose your loyalty. To choose your allegiance. To choose your God. If it is disagreeable to you today to serve the Lord God, then choose today what God you will serve. Elijah would ask it this way. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? Jesus declared, you cannot serve two masters. Like Israel, some this morning may have been carrying, may come here carrying idols or false gods you've carried for a long, long time. If you choose this day to serve the Lord, put away your gods. Let this be your Shechem. Let these oaks be the oaks where you bury your idols. Let this be the place for the death of those gods. And let this be the place for new life in Christ and a new day To serve the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your words and your prophet Joshua are weighty words. And I pray in the quiet of the moment here
1: that we would examine
0: our hearts in light of your words. I pray your Holy Spirit would work in us to confess, to repent of any gods that we've brought here today, for any gods that we carry in the caverns of our heart. I pray you do that work in us. As we take a moment during our time of prayer, I invite each of you to pray and talk to the Lord about gods that you've carried, that you may have carried with you today. Heavenly Father, I pray that this would be our Shechem. If there be gods in our lives that we are carrying about, I pray that you would give us a grace to bury them today, right here with these oaks. I pray, Father, for the sanctification of your people, that you would build us up, that you would give us grace, that you would give us joy. I pray that your Holy Spirit would testify to our salvation, not only in convicting us of sin, but assuring us of grace and forgiveness and your unstoppable love. Oh, Father, we love you when we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.